Father, thank you for gathering us here tonight for just this, this brief time to still our soul, to find rest in you, to find hope in you. God, only you know what every one of us is walking in here with tonight, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. Father, I pray you'd speak to us now through your very imperfect sermon. I ask this in Jesus' name. Well, welcome again to Epiphany. Go ahead and take a seat, gang. Good to be here with you tonight. Uh, so, uh, in case you didn't know, we're in a season of Lent. And um, and what that means when you're in the season of Lent, uh, typically is, you know, we would go through a book of the Bible or something like that. But we're actually um, going through what's known as lectionary texts right now, which are basically a set of texts from the Psalms and from the Old Testament the epistles and from the gospels that have been chosen by scholars and theologians over quite a long time. And, uh, and so we're going to be looking at some of the lectionary texts tonight. And it just so happens that I think today, today's lectionary text might be um, the most uh, comforting, the most uh, gracious, because tonight we're looking at the story of, well, one of my favorite stories in Scripture, the story of the prodigal son. So, with that said by way of introduction, let's listen to what the story of the prodigal son says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And the text is on the screen if you want to follow along too. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There we are. Thanks. So he told them this parable. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, 
And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Well, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Well, my guess is you've heard that story before at some point in your life or a version of it. It seems that when, uh, when Jesus was walking here in his earthly ministry, uh, he tended to always have two groups of people swarming around him, always kind of hanging out nearby. Uh, the first group were generally outcasts, sick people, weirdos, drunks, prostitutes, tax collectors, thieves, murderers, adulterers, and everything else that goes with the word sinner. But there was another group that were always lurking near Jesus, and they were, well, they were the religious types, the really religious types, the scribes, those who made a living out of copying God's law word for word, very meticulously, the Pharisees, the conservative, doctrinally, Orthodox strand of Judaism, the Sadducees, maybe the more progressive or liberal arm of Judaism, and various other strict moralists found themselves also constantly intrigued by Jesus. And yet in our story today, we're told that only one of these groups is drawing near to Jesus, is drawing near to him. And that's the first group, the sinners. They didn't, just sort of, they didn't just overhear Jesus, but they, they drew near to Jesus. Something about him made them feel welcome enough, comfortable enough to, to actually draw near. This group of losers was drawn to him because of him throughout his whole entire ministry. But the second group the really moral, law-abiding religious folks couldn't stand being near Jesus and didn't like the fact that he would stand near such sinners. They were close in proximity to him, that's true, but they never, they never could draw near to him, and so they, they grumbled. This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's their complaint at the beginning. And the implication is this man doesn't take sin seriously enough. He's endorsing their lifestyle. How can he possibly claim to be the Messiah of Israel, God in the flesh, the Holy One, and yet go out to eat with these guys 
when he knows what they've done. And it's in answer to that objection that we're told in verse 3, Jesus decides to tell a set of parables. Actually, three parables, but they're all one. They're all connected. First, he tells us a parable about a lost sheep, and then he tells a parable about a lost coin. We're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus on the third in the parable, and that is the parable of what I would call the lost sons. Sometimes referred to as the prodigal son. But it really is a story about two sons. So let's look at the first son. First son, the unrighteous brother. He said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, at first upon reading those words, just those words, without knowing the rest of the story, we might, we might be tempted to pass over them pretty quickly. I mean, what we may assume from the picture we are given of this younger son is that he seems to be probably typical of many a young person growing up in their parents' house. He... He's at that age where, you know, he wants to get out and sow his wild oats, so to speak, whatever that phrase means. He wants to see the world. He doesn't want to live under the rules of his father's house anymore. Besides, he sees his friends all around him, moving out, finally being free of the shackles of living at home. So, so we might say, ah, typical young man. Typical young man looking for a little freedom. Nothing wrong with that. But our assumptions would be wrong about him because, you see, at that time, the request of this younger son was, was really unheard of. In that day, you never asked for the share of your father's inheritance, ever. The way it worked is generally upon the father's death, the firstborn son, this is just the way it was, I'm not saying it's fair, I'm not saying it's right, but the way it was is the firstborn son would get two-thirds of the father's estate uh, well, the remaining third would go to the younger brother, it, it, or the rest of the whole family. So, but the older, the firstborn would get the, the lion's share. Nevertheless, this is what this is what the younger brother is asking for. He wants his third. But this again was only supposed to happen at the father's death. So, what he is telling his father when he asked for his property or his share of the inheritance this early in that culture was basically saying to his father, I don't care if you die. I don't, I don't care about you. I just want your money. I just want your money. I want your stuff. And that's why in the next verse, when we read that the father, quote, divides his property, that's what it says. The, the literal word for dividing the property there between his boys is actually not the normal word for doing such a thing. The word for property there is actually life in Greek. A man's property, a father's property, was so entangled with his very identity that it's as if he's killing himself, giving himself away, dividing his life away for this little snot to be able to take the money and run. And so we see that part of what it means to, to be lost is a desire for the father's things, but not the father himself. It's a belief that you, that you know better than God what's good for you. That's, after all, what the devil's always played on. From the very beginning in Genesis, you know, you read the story in Scripture, the devil plays on this idea that God's sort of holding something back from you in life. That's how he gets Adam and Eve to fall. 
Did God really say? No, no, no. He's just holding off. He knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be open and life will be amazing and he doesn't want you to experience something. That's what this kid feels about his father. He just doesn't want me to have all that I can have. So, at this point in the story, Jesus here would probably expect him to say something like, the father punished his young son for such a dishonorable request. As a matter of fact, it would have been, it would have been in that culture understood if he had had his son imprisoned or stoned or something like that. Or maybe at least the older brother for the rest of the community would hurt the younger brother. But strangely, that does not happen. We don't hear any of that happening. Rather, the father, knowing that his son is a fool and will get into all sorts of trouble with his share of the inheritance money, allows him to take it anyway. Okay, you want it, you can have it. And by the way, that is what will eventually happen in our spiritual lives as well. Romans 1 talks about God not restraining people who are determined to go headlong into rebellion and sin. That, that actually one of the worst forms of his judgment is for him to just say, okay, you want to go after that addiction? Go ahead. You want to go after that, that problem? Go ahead. I'm, I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to restrain you But don't mistake this handing over to necessarily, necessarily be painful. At least not at first. I mean, you know, you'd think that you'd read the story like, oh, and everything worked out terribly. I mean, with this abuse of his father's uh, stuff, you would expect that, you know, maybe a good moral of the story would be nothing worked out. He fell on his face and came home immediately. But no, at first, life is awesome. He's having so much fun with all of this money. He's winning friends and influencing people. He is partying it up. He is meeting up with women. He has moved into a sweet studio apartment in Soho where everything is happening. And at this point, he cannot see any possible reason why he'd ever want to move home again. This was the best decision he's ever made in his life. You know, we do know, by the way, we can acknowledge this as, as Christians, uh, that sin is indeed, it can be pleasurable for a season. The book of Hebrews says that. You know, sometimes Christians talk like, oh no, sin is, is you're, it's making you miserable. Eventually, yes, but you, you might have a long time where you're like, seems pretty good. Kind of liking it. Feels good. For a season. That moment, partying, the sex, the fun seems great. But, when the tide turns, the tide turns Because it's only the very next verse that tells us, quote, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him any. Goodness gracious, how fleeting are the pleasures of sin. One day he's on top of the world. The next day he's at bottom. He's in a foreign country. As a Jewish boy, he is now doing the most menial, disgusting, unclean work a Jew can do. Feeding pigs. 
And not only that, he's longing to be fed their food. And this indeed is eventually where, where rebellion does lead. It gets there. Eventually, eventually. For a while it might be fun, but eventually it gets there. It allures us in always, always, always with promises of freedom and beauty and prestige and, and then leaves us longing for pig slop. It's what happens to people consumed by an addiction, consumed by greed. It's what happens to people that cheat on their spouses. They don't just wake up one day and say, I, I want to destroy my life and the lives of others. People don't do that. People, people don't just make it decision like, I would like to destroy everything in my way. It's not like that. It starts with just wanting the feeling the drug gives a little more. It starts with just needing a little more money to get by. It starts with just wanting a little more attention than you're feeling at home and soon you're eating the slop. So if, if the story ended right there, like what if Jesus' story ended right there? There would be part of us, or at least some of us, that might feel a little satisfied about that. There'd be part of us that would feel like, well, serves him right. Treats his father with that kind of disrespect. You get what's coming to you. And it'd be a nice Aesop fable. And we could wipe our hands and go home. But this is not that kind of story. This is a story of grace. Suddenly at the bottom, at the pit, he's got no other options. The younger brother says he comes to himself. He remembers his father. Maybe, maybe my father will take me back. He's not, obviously, I forfeited my sonship. I mean, I've already taken my inheritance. I, I know I can't have that. I can't have the rights of a son anymore, but maybe... Maybe he'll just take me back as a servant. And so I, I know what I do. I know what I'll do. I'll rehearse his, uh, He starts rehearsing his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. I, I can see him repeating that speech over and over and over again as he begins to make his way back to his home. Father, I, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Changing the tone of voice. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What will his father say? Will his father even acknowledge him? In that culture, everything, everything, everything was based on honor, not love. In this culture, very much it's sort of love is, is, is a very high value. In that culture, honor. For what this youngest son did, surely any self-respecting father would not have anything to do with this son because his son would have been dead to him. But to the surprise, it must have been like jaw-dropping surprise of Jesus' audience then and even to us still today, we see something totally unexpected. As the son turns the bend, rehearsing his speech, we're told that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
Now, in that culture, a dignified man never, ever ran. A dignified man walked slowly in his long, flowing robes. But this father has been on the lookout for a long, long time. This father is so overwhelmed with love for his son that it's as if all thoughts of what anybody else thinks of him go out the window. He doesn't care anymore. All that matters now is his son is home. So he lifts his robe off the ground. He would have had to do that, revealing his legs. This is insane back then. You never do that. But because he's so overwhelmed with love for his lost, rebellious son, he runs out to him, showers him with hugs and kisses, and says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate, says the jubilant father. So what does all that have to do with you? Well, everything. Everything. Because a part of every one of us is this son. We, through our rebellion, have abandoned God a thousand times. And yet the message to you who have run off to a far country far too many times is welcome home. Because the Father is undying in his love for you. Why? Because just as the Father divided his property, his life, Jesus divided his life, his everything for you. Even when, even when you would squander it away because of this sacrifice, this absorption of sin and wrongdoing done to him, he has covered your shame, your sin before God with the best robe. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, the Apostle Paul says. You've been clothed in the perfect robe of Jesus' righteousness. In Christ Jesus, you've been given the signet ring. When one wore this, this ring, they were given the right to, to the sign in the Father's name again. All this authority immediately given to this rebellious, reckless son. It was a symbol of having such great authority. Those slaves and servants would not have worn shoes. This is the Father's son. Sons wear shoes. So the Father says, bring some shoes for him. And now all that's left to do is feast together and celebrate. And you would think... That, then, would be the end. Oh, okay, so that's the story. That's great in and of itself. A lot of people stop there. The shocker of a God who's that gracious and loving and caring that would accept us even after our reckless abandon of him. But there's another brother. There's an older brother in this equation, and he is just as lost as the younger brother was, but in a very subtle and different way. If, if the younger brother is lost because of his unrighteousness, the older brother is lost because of his self-righteousness. And frankly, Jesus says the unrighteous are closer to the kingdom of God than the self-righteous. So... The older brother hears the news about his brother's homecoming and far from being happy and celebrating. This guy is furious, hopping mad. He was angry and refused to go in the party, it says. And to tell you the truth, it's understandable why the older brother is angry, isn't it? I mean, the last time he saw his younger brother, he was spitting in his dad's face, and now he's eating the fattened calf, a major delicacy at that time. Now, the, the whole community is celebrating with 
the father. The older brother can't do it. He's out there serving the father in the field. He's never left home. He's never squandered his father's belonging. He thinks he's done what he's been told. So no, he's not going to celebrate this younger brother's coming. You see, that's just the problem with the older brother type of lostness, isn't it? I mean, his response shows that he didn't really serve his father purely for the joy of serving his father. As a matter of fact, like the younger brother, he did what he did for the father, apparently for the reward, the reward that he thought was coming to him too. It, here's the deal. It's entirely possible. It is entirely possible to be very religious, to be very devout, seemingly, and to be very, very far from God, maybe even further than the non-religious. And yet, because the father loves both of his sons, he comes out to where both of them are at. The younger one off in the distance, he runs to. The older one, standing outside the party, he goes to. He entreats him. Come. Join the party. That's, that's the invitation. Like, hey, there's a party. Enjoy. But the older brother cannot do it. He's disgusted. There's an old preacher named Fred Craddock. Back in the day, he was preaching on this, and he decided to tweak the story. Instead of the father throwing a party upon the arrival of his lost wayward son, the father takes the occasion to throw a party for the elder son for all of his great obedience over the years. And while he was preaching the story that way, a woman yelled in the back of the congregation, that's the way it should have been. That's the way it should have been. The elder brother deserved it. But that's not how it went. Look at what the older brother says. He says, now, now it says look in modern translations, but actually in Greek, it's literally, he speaks to the father this way. As the father invites him in, he says, look, you. Hugely disrespectful tone to his father. Look, you. These many years I have served you, literally slaved away for you, revealing his true feelings about how he felt serving his father. And I never disobeyed your command. Oh, oh, Really? Oh, you didn't? Oh, the deception of self-righteousness. I've been crushing it. I've been righteous. I deserve more. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Look at how self-deluded he is. I never disobeyed you. And notice, what was he really serving his father for? I want a young goat. The rewards, the bennies, he's really, he's no different than the younger brother. He's just going about it in a more dignified way, a more socially acceptable way. Older brother, self-righteous lostness is always comparing themselves to others too, rather than the father. Notice, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Don't you see how bad he was? I'm better, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better. So, the question for you sitting here tonight in these metalish type chairs in this small little room 
is which, which brother are you in this story? Are you the unrighteous or the self-righteous? I, I don't think we're actually supposed to answer either one because the truth is you're both. Yes, you have sinned and gone off to a far country, but you've also sinned in comparing yourself and your righteousness to others. And yet the Father stands there inviting both brothers in. The younger comes in, but we never hear what the older does. And if the older brother is indeed the religious types, we, uh, it does represent, you know, the religious types, the Pharisees and such, it would appear that for the most part they never really did come in and were the primary group responsible for having Jesus arrested, tried, whipped, beaten, and crucified. They rejected the party. But you don't have to. You don't have to. His invitation to come in and rejoice with him still stands. Because the sacrifice has been made. That sacrifice is there for you to feast on today, but it is not a, a fatted calf. Rather, the feast he invites you to partake in today is the feast of God's very own body and blood here at the table for the covering of your sins. He invites the older brothers and the younger brothers to this feast right now. Come, take, eat my body given for the salvation of the world. This is my blood given for the forgiveness of your sins. To you who see your need for the Father's love manifested in Jesus Christ who lived perfectly in your place, died the death you deserve and rose again for your justification, well, the Father says, come. Repent of your goodness. Repent of your badness. And enjoy the feast that the Father provides for both younger brothers, older brothers, and everyone in between. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that we get to come to your table now. We pray, Lord God, that as we continue in worship, that you would prepare our hearts to receive what you have to give us here now with this feast of celebration in life. We ask this in Jesus' name.